Well, hello, hello. <laughs> better, better. She's better. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for all your prayers and calls and texts and support. My family's been sick, but we're better now. So I'm, I'm glad to be back. You know me, I always look for, for interesting things. I'm always checking to see if there's new archaeological discoveries or what's happening. And one event has just happened this past weekend in Egypt that really has everybody scratching their head. I mean, it's something, I'm joking, but it's kind of a biblical thing, but it rained hard in Egypt uh, from Cairo down south, and it never rains in Egypt. They are unprepared for any of it. So we, we've got some, some footage of it. You think Midlanders have a hard time in the rain. I mean, Egyptians would go their whole life and not ever see rain. And they rely on the Nile. Do, do we have the video? Well, no, that's not it. That's the... <laughs> that's it. All right. So it's heavy rain, it's hail, and Aswan, that we'll actually talk about tonight, is at the very southern tip of Egypt, right where they border uh, Sudan in Africa. So this is absolutely in the desert. They said there was a real drop in temperature and even little flurries of snow, which again, they've never ever in recorded history seen any of this. But what's happened is scorpions that live in the desert went to where it was warm, which was in the city. And so about 750 people were stung by scorpions, and three have died. Doesn't that sound like something biblical? I mean, it really does. I, I cannot for the life of me match it to anything. Um, yeah, no kidding. I didn't. I didn't do any of this. Um, so they're they're having a hard time. Um, you know, any kind of drainage in Aswan is just a joke. Uh, it's all flat. So a, a friend of mine was joking that the Egyptians ought to file a restraining order against God, um, <laughs> that there's, there's too much of this going on. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. I don't put too much stock in it, but it just sure is interesting, isn't it? Um, the, the scorpion part really got me. So I don't know. It's not finished yet. Anyway, let's have a quick word of prayer, and we'll, we'll get into it. Lord our God... We do thank you that you're still in it, that as much as we read ancient prophecies and look at ancient history, it is a vehicle for us to understand today and even understand tomorrow. Help us, O oh Lord, to know that you are as here with us as you were with Ezekiel, as you were with Adam and Eve, and your desire for us to be better, to be people that make righteous, good, loving choices has never gone away. Help us to watch the signs, but not get lost in the signs. For you are never cryptic of what you want us to do. That you have made it quite clear that your son is a path to life. That following the gospel that Jesus brought to us will make us and our world the place that it should be. So help us as we walk that path that is not overly crowded, 
as we do our best to be your children. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight is kind of another hard part. I know I say that a lot with Ezekiel. It's a part, it's, it's a good section actually, that people have a tendency to skip over. It's the prophecies and some of the history of Egypt. Now, what does Israel have to do with Egypt? Obviously, they have a long history together, right? They've been neighbors at this point in history for a thousand years. Sort of like Jesus, Israel grew up in Egypt. They were a family of shepherds when they entered Egypt, and 400 years later, they come out a million-plus people. So formatively, they've always been connected to Egypt culturally. Egypt's always been their big neighbor, always been more powerful than them. And tonight, we see sort of the expectations God had for this neighbor of Israel. And as we read it, I want you to really think about how it applies to us today, because I don't think you have to dig very deep before you'll see some very big similarities. But this, these four chapters also give us an insight into what God wants from Gentiles. Almost always in the Old Testament, we're reading about what God wanted from his people, the, the, the Jews, the, the Israelites, the people he taught, the people he made covenant with, the people he sent prophets to. He didn't do that to other people, not yet. He will in the time of Jesus, but not yet. So what does he expect from them up until that point? And I think it raises a lot of questions for us. What does God expect from people around the world today? Anything? Nothing? Something? I think Ezekiel will help us answer that tonight. So we're going to go back to chapter 29 and pick it up. And I should confess, this period right now that we're talking about is what I specialized in school. So this 26th dynasty Egypt, the relations between the, the collapsing Judean kingdom and the 26th dynasty Egypt is exactly what I did. So I have to constrain myself, uh, but it's, it's an amazing uh, point in history. But 29 verse 1, on January 7th, during the 10th year of Jehoiachin's captivity, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn towards Egypt and prophesy against Pharaoh, the king of all the people of Egypt. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. I am your enemy, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lurking in the streams of the Nile. For you have said, the Nile River is mine. I made it for myself. I will put a hook in your jaw and drag you out on the land with fish sticking to your scales. I will leave you and all your fish stranded in the desert to die. You will lie unburied on an open ground, for I have given you as food to the wild animals and the birds. Wow. Wow. So a lot to unpack. First, who is, who is God mad at? Egypt, specifically. Yeah, Pharaoh, he's, he's getting it, and the people of Egypt. What is he mad about? They did. They claimed what he created. They said, the Nile River is mine. I've made it for myself. 
So we've got a couple maps that will help us. You all know this, I'm sure, back from world history. Egypt, as the Greek historian Herodotus said, is the gift of the Nile. So without this incredibly long river, the longest river in the world, Egypt would not exist. So it actually begins in Uganda, flows north. A river supposed to go north? It's completely backwards, isn't it? Uh, the Egyptians always think rivers are supposed to flow this way. So when they go other places, they are said, that's a backwards river. And everybody else is like, no, your river is backwards, Egypt. But anyway, so two, the blue, the blue Nile and the white Nile converge in Sudan, and then they flow out into Egypt. So then we've got another satellite map of Egypt itself. So really look at that. The desert out there is not even like the desert we have here. Mesquite would die of thirst in the Egyptian desert. I mean, a cactus would say, it's hot. Uh, There is nothing, nothing out there. Still today, the Egyptians don't live out there. I was talking to some of them, and they have gas under the dunes um, out on towards the Libyan side. But it's too expensive to go out there and drill it. Which I'm like, yeah, you ought to come to West Texas. <laughs> we'll get natural gas and oil out of anything. There's no telling us no. But part of that is they just can't get water out there. I mean, it is so dry. So without this little sliver of a river, and as you see it go north, what they're doing is creating uh, irrigation fields. So it's harder in the south because it's rocky. And by the way, when we were looking at Aswan, Aswan is right here. That's where the rain was. Um, that's why I was, I was really shocked. Uh, maybe you could get some way up in the north, but forget it in the south. It's, it's not going to happen. So all of Egypt's population today is centered. 93% of their population is in that little bitty strip. It gets better in the north where it branches out. That's called the delta. It looks like a D and Old Greek, so they call it Delta. That's where they raise the cattle um, because you have a lot of fields. So the Egyptians were proud of that. But since ancient times, when North Africa changed, North Africa used to be a savanna before it became the Sahara Desert. And about, uh, we'll say 5,000 years ago, about 3,000 BC, uh, the jet stream shifts north. And it goes into Southern Europe, which is what creates uh, France. It's what creates Italy, Greece. It's wonderful for them, but it was terrible for the North Africans. So people say, oh, the climate is changing. Yes, climate always changes. It's been changing as long as we can understand climate changing. So ask the Egyptians. They all had to move from the savannas. Where, and it's funny, when you, you, if you're ever in the Sahara, you'll find rock art. And they show pictures of elephants and giraffes, boats. Um, there's actually a lake, such as it is in uh, Libya, actually now, and it has crocodiles in it. It's like in the middle of the desert, and you get out there, and a spring is fed. And of course, you go to drink of water, and there's an alligator or a crocodile in it. Like, how in the world did these things get here? But it's left over from this changing climate. So the Egyptians had actually been further west and come and settled. And for their entire history, this river blessed them beyond measure. Still today, Egypt produces incredible food from this Nile. Now, it's not as good as it was in the ancient times, 
because it would rain in Ethiopia and it would flood uh, out towards the ocean and it would flood the land in Egypt, bringing with it fertilizer, fresh black soil. Actually, the Egyptians named their country after the soil. They call their country the black land because of the soil. They love it. I always say I don't like vegetables very much, um, but in Egypt I do. They taste different. They are bigger. They are juicier. They have a bell pepper that's juicy. It's strange. I mean, you can squeeze it and stuff comes out. It, it, all our bell peppers are dry, and it's it's a real sweet kind of thing. It's I'll take you all someday when it doesn't rain in Egypt, and um, we'll we'll have a finer discussion of. Uh, fruits and vegetables in Egypt. They are good. I have a photo. I don't know what I've done with it. Um, but there was a guy driving down the street. And I was in a bus and he had cabbages and they were as big as, I kid you not, basketballs. I mean, these were the biggest cabbages I've ever seen in my life. Don't like cabbages yet, but I took a picture of it. I can't find it, but it's that kind of stuff that made sure Egypt had a very large population throughout its history. And when you're bigger than your neighbor, what can you do to your neighbor? You can beat up your neighbor. So they did that a lot. Um, Egypt's got a lot of poverty today, but even in that poverty, they don't go hungry. The Nile can still feed them. They can't feed themselves totally, though. They have to import food now. But for any biblical kind of period, that's what sustained them. And when you look at Israel, which you can sort of see just north, the brown along the coast. Can you all see that way up there? Should have brought my pointer. So Israel is way up there in the mountains. And how much green is up there? Nothing. You know, that's the promised land. Thank you. So God never asked much of the Egyptians other than to let the Israelites go. But he did bless them quite a bit, didn't he? And they claimed it for themselves. They said they did it. In fact, Part of Pharaoh's contract with the nation, if you will, is that he ensures there's a good flood every year. So when God says, you claim that you've done it, he really does. He says, I should rule you because I can convince the gods to give us a good flood. So let that sink in for a minute. God is actually angry because they have claimed what he has given them for themselves. They don't acknowledge him in any way. And then we have this really interesting description. It's very poetic. Um, I am your enemy, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You great monster lurking in the streams of the Nile. Can you tell what they're talking about? Yeah, it's a, it's a crocodile. That's one of the things that you don't see anywhere else. And it was, I'm sure, quite a shock for a Jew to walk into the lake or the, the river and look in and think, wow, what is that thing? And so what happens to this great crocodile? Yeah, it has hooks put in its nose or its, its jaw and it's dragged out on the land. And its attendant fish are going to starve and it's left out to die. As vicious and horrible as crocodiles are, they're not going to hunt you for a couple of days, are they? They're not going to run you down. I mean, they might be quick at the riverside, and I've heard some people actually in Florida tell me, you know, they can move 
pretty fast if they want to, but not for long distances. I mean, it's not like a pack of wolves that's going to chase you down. It's not like a lion. Um, it's pretty vicious right at the river um, and a little bit to the side. And in a sense, that's a great image of Egypt. Egypt is really, really powerful in Egypt. And for some periods, they'll extend their power beyond their borders, but not much. And they're not really good at it. At this point in particular, Egypt is spending massive amounts of money on mercenaries. It's the only way they're keeping up with the arms race. They are the first, sort of in the ancient Near East, that figure out Greeks are great fighters. The hoplites with all the armor and shield and the greaves and the breastplates, they're, they're pretty tough. And so Egypt has a revolving uh, door when it comes to as many... First they start with Carians and Ionians, and then they bring Spartans and Athenians, whoever they can buy. They will come and have them fight for them. They also hire a lot of Jews to fight for them, and that will come up later. As Jews begin to lose their homes, they will flee into Egypt, and the Egyptians will hire them. Egyptians still have about half of their army as their own native people, but they are they're having a hard time keeping up. But God is upset that he has blessed them, and they have not acknowledged him. Stop and think about that for a minute. Can you think of other nations on our planet that God has blessed through natural creation that sometimes forget to acknowledge him? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've got some pretty good land here, don't we? We have nice, big, western land, plenty of farming here, right? We once fed the world. Now it seems like we import a lot of our food too, though. Do we suffer from a lack of natural resources? No. We got this wonderful black gold he left for us. Nice little surprise buried underneath the ground. Thank you for that. We, we really appreciate it. Um, but we've got gold mines and silver mines and copper mines and we've got nice borders. I think at points in our history we've acknowledged him. But we do tend to stray away from it. And then what about nations like the Soviet Union? Well, Russia now or China, uh, other places. Obviously when the gospel spreads it changes things that I think his expectations go higher. But it's interesting, isn't it, to look at this? that the least he wanted from the other peoples of the planet was just to acknowledge he was the God of the garden, the God of creation. One of the things he's going to talk about a lot tonight are the trees from the Garden of Eden, and that Egypt, in a sense, was one of them. Um, but she has not, she's not grown well. But let's go on to verse 6. All of the people of Egypt will discover that I am the Lord. For you collapsed like a reed when Israel took you for help. Israel leaned on you, but like a cracked staff, you splintered and stabbed her in the arm. But when she put her weight on you, you gave way, and her back was thrown out of joint. So, the, so now the sovereign Lord says, I will bring an army against you, O Egypt, and destroy both people and animals. The land of Egypt will become a desolate waste, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. 
because you have said, the Nile River is mine, I made it. I am now the enemy of both you and your river, and I will utterly destroy the land of Egypt. From Migdal to, what does your Bible say? Aswan, which we just saw, as far south as the border of Ethiopia. Okay, so two things, two, repeat it twice for us. I gave you this, this great gift, you never acknowledged it. And then, what's this deal with Egypt, or with Israel? Talked about it a little bit. Was Egypt supposed to help Judah in its last hours? Yes. God said, you, you made a promise. You said you would come and help them. You were Israel, he gives this image, was like a person walking on a, a crutch. And Egypt was the crutch, but you were a broken reed. When they put their weight on you, they really depended on you. You just fell. You just, you just fell apart. Um, that when they, the hour of their great need, you, you didn't come. And this was certainly the case. The Egyptians were striving the best that they could to resist Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. As I said, they were fallen behind, and so they're hiring mercenaries. And so they kept trying to encourage Judah to revolt against the Babylonians. Just fight them. We'll help you. We'll bring our mass army to aid you in your time of need. Well, they don't do it. They're basically just using the Judeans as cannon fodder. The Babylonians will have to fight their way through the Judeans in order to get to Egypt. And so the Egyptians were playing them. And this is where the Bible is so accurate that it's scary. I mean, they really, really did know the exact history of which they were speaking. There was a, a pharaoh towards the end of the 26th dynasty by the name of Apris, which we've got a, a statue of him. He's the first one. I actually have a big one of him I meant to bring tonight, and I didn't. But there he is, Apris. And somebody broke his nose. But he uh, had of all these pharaohs, really, really invested in mercenaries. And so when Nebuchadnezzar was coming to attack Jerusalem, he mobilized the entire Egyptian army, which would have been huge, and he marched north. Now, first, when he arrived on the scene, the Babylonians retreated because the Egyptian army was too big. And the Babylonians were pretty cautious of fighting a lot of these Greek mercenaries. But something happened, and the Egyptian sources go quiet. Well, I say that, maybe that might be changing right now, but all of the Egyptian sources we have go quiet. Other than, for some reason, Opris turns his army around without ever engaging the Babylonians and goes home. It causes an uproar in Egypt. We don't know why he, he turned around. One thing that happened when I was in Egypt, uh, I think we have a Stella uh, that a farmer found in his field. I wish I could have been that farmer. Um, so there it is. I mean, that's just, isn't it beautiful? I mean, stunning. Pink granite. And it's King Opris's. I got this out of a, a newspaper article in Egypt. It, and they almost never find 26 Dynasty stuff. So every time I find it, I'm very excited. But you see his cartouche way up north. Um, 
This is the biggest. I can read like the bottom three lines, but I can't read the top of it. And so that's the way I'm sure the Egyptologists wanted it because they're going to publish the paper on it. But they're saying it's King Opris's advances into Judah, which we have no record of except for the Bible up at this point. So if they'll just publish that, I'll come back and tell you what it says. I'm sure it's going to say, he won everything, I beat everybody up, I'm great. But it'll be interesting to see how he handles it, because we know from the Egyptian sources he returns without fighting to save the Judeans. Now, part of his army is made up of Judean mercenaries. So part of his army is Jewish. They lose their minds, and they actually revolt against the Egyptians. They're so upset that this army turned around when they could have saved Jerusalem. The Egyptians put these Jewish mercenaries on an island far to the south. So I think we have a map of Elephantine. I think we have both a photo and a map of it. Yeah. So notice where Aswan is. And then see out in the Nile River where the little yellow uh, pin dot is is an island called Elephantine. They name it because there's big rocks there that look like elephants. So it's like elephant town. But again, this is the southern border of Egypt. So the Egyptians put these Jewish mercenaries in a garrison fortress here because they want them far from the border. You know, they don't want them interacting with their compatriots from Judah. Uh, So they're all this way down here in Africa guarding the border against Ethiopians that will try to get up north. But this is the ruins that we have on the island. And there was a huge Jewish settlement there. We actually found the letters of the Jews living there. And this is why we know so much about it. Uh, The Jews actually built a temple to God on this island. And it was right next to the Egyptian temple. But the Egyptian army itself has to march all the way down here, put down these Jewish mercenaries. I mean, it's a vicious battle. The Egyptian, and I'm getting more detail than you probably want, but the Egyptian general that did this, marched the army down here and put down the Jews, will go back up north and overthrow his pharaoh, which never, ever, ever happens in Egyptian history. Because pharaoh is a god. You can't just kill him and replace him with another person. So this is what I mean, that the Bible knows exactly what it's talking about. This pharaoh did something, and we don't know what, why he turned around, what it was. Is he coward? He, I don't know what it was. But it shamed Egypt. It shamed Judah. I think God's hand is in it. And it really marks the end of Egyptian civilization, which is crazy. Uh, but I'll hold that off for a minute. Um, we'll get into some text. Let me stop. Questions? Um, If you ever have a chance to go to Egypt, this is one of the places you need to go. It's out of the beaten path. It's way down. You have to fly down to get down there. They won't let you drive. But it's uh, it's a lot of biblical history on that little island. One of the letters they tell us is really funny. The people, the Egyptians on the island, worshipped a god named Kunum, who is a ram-headed person that makes a soul on a potter's wheel. And the Jews are living on the island and they celebrate Passover. So what do you do when you celebrate Passover? 
right? So you, you kill a lamb, you kill a ram. And then, of course, the Egyptians worship <laughs> the ram. So they had a tough time sometimes. The Egyptians got a little, little out of sorts about all that. But God warned Egypt, uh, this is it. You have taken for granted what I've given you. You've not done well with it. And in its time of need, who did you not support? Israel. And I hate to be just pointed about it, but it's sort of two standards here God's laying out. I bless you, and I expect you to acknowledge it. And I expect you to help Israel. They did not. Even though they promised that they would, for whatever reason, Opris turns the army around. Um, God has his standard. Do you help my people? As Christians, we've got a mixed record of that. Sometimes we help them, sometimes we don't help them. I'm particularly proud of the United States. Uh, in World War II, we helped them, and certainly we help them today. But when push comes to shove, this pastor will tell you we ought to end up on the side of Israel. Uh, it's just that old and that important. Egypt, and I'll, I'll tell you this as an Egyptologist, it's a fascinating point in their history because everything goes wrong. Everything that they've always done does not suddenly work. I mean, they are the oldest civilization in the world at that point. They know how to run the government. They know how to keep the roads clean. They know how to organize an army. They, they know better than anybody else. I mean, they were building pyramids when most people were still hunting and gathering. They got culture upon culture. But it all falls apart. By 525 B.C., the Egyptians will lose control of their country, which is what these prophecies are talking about. So we talk about the Jews going into exile. Egypt sort of goes into an eternal exile. They will live in their land, but they will not rule themselves for 2,479 years. It was 1954 before an Egyptian ruled Egypt again. So we're, we're on the cliff here of it all falling apart. Now you can make a strong argument today that really the Egyptians don't rule themselves anymore. The Arabs invaded and they've interbred with the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians are really not the people who we're talking about here. 10% of the Egyptian population is still native. So it's sort of like in Mexico, you can still see uh, the, the native tribes, right? Um, but the Arabs, for the most part, dominate. A northern Egyptian, an Arab, always has lighter skin. They have heavy beards, generally. Uh, you can still tell a native Egyptian they're darker, and they're almost red like a Native American. I had a good friend from Oklahoma, and every time he'd get in the sun, he'd turn red. If you've known Indians, right, they, they really do have a different kind of tanning. And the more time I spent with the Egyptians, I thought, there it is. I see it. Um, this 10% of the Egyptian population today, the native, are Christian, which is one of those great ironies of the world. Uh, they are really, really good people, if you ever have a chance. One of the things that the Arabs made them do is tattoo their hands with a cross. This is one of the ways that they could distinguish them. If you ever did business with anybody and they went to shake your hand, they would check to see if you had a cross. 
So, I mean, the Christians suffer terribly in Egypt. It's just throughout the long history. It's a stubborn determination that they've endured. Today, they wear these crosses on their hands as a sign of faith, of, of determination. It's frustrating because they get very little education. They mostly live in poverty in the South. And when they meet Americans, they always want to talk to us. But almost invariably, they don't speak English because they don't have the education. Whereas the Arabs get the education and they'll speak English to you. So I'm telling you, if you ever have a chance in Egypt and they're darker and they have the tattoos, please go out of your way to help them. Um, tip them, go to their stores. You know, the Arabs let them open liquor stores. Isn't that, isn't that sad? Because um, Islam forbids alcohol. Um, but they still drink. They have Egyptian beer. It's weird. Um, but the Christians are the ones that get to sell it. Um, anyway, I'll, I won't get on all that. But So here we sit on the precipice of all this destruction, all of this change of a culture that has existed for 3,000 years. And it's because you're failing to acknowledge God of the garden and you didn't help Israel when the time was right. Let me jump ahead to chapter 7. Well, no, let me do this. Um, verse 13. Oh, God, all of it's so good. Um, verse 13, sorry. But the sovereign Lord also said, at the end of the 40 years, so he's telling Egypt, basically, you're going to wander. I will bring the Egyptians back home again from the nations from which they have been scattered. Now, who else did he do that for? He did that for the Jews. Um, he's not destroying them to wipe them off the face of the earth. There are a lot of groups that do face that, like the Canaanites we talked about a couple weeks ago. So he's not trying to destroy them forever. He's just trying to get them back in the right place. Um, I will restore the prosperity of Egypt and bring its people back to the land of Pathros in the south where they came from, but Egypt will remain an unimportant minor kingdom. It will be the lowest of all the nations, never again great enough to rise against its neighbors. Which again is this perfect capturing of what happened. Uh, Egypt will pass from being you know, an imperial power to being a province. Nebuchadnezzar will hit the border and hit it so hard he shakes the country loose. Shortly after them, the Persians will invade and conquer the whole country. Egypt will fight back, and they'll have brief years where they're independent, but it's just like three years, two years. Eventually, the Greeks come in, and they drive out the Persians. But the Greeks, famously Cleopatra, the Macedonians, the Ptolemies, will rule for several centuries. And then the Romans beat out uh, the Greeks, and the Romans will turn Egypt into their breadbasket. I was reading an article, I think I told you, 83% of all the grain grown in Egypt during the Roman times is being exported to Rome. Rome uh, Egypt is, is just feeding the rest of the world. Then the Arabs will invade. Um, the Roman Empire had turned into a Christian empire, the Byzantine Empire, and in six, what is it, 647 AD, the Arabs will invade um, in a sense, they've never left. Uh, nobody has freed Egypt from the Arabs. So they're still there today. 
They've never been a great power since. Verse 16, Israel will no longer be tempted to trust in Egypt for help. Egypt shattered's condition will remain, will remind Israel of how sinful she was to trust Egypt in her early days. Then Israel will know that I alone am the Lord, the God of Israel. Continuing on in verse 17, on April 26th, during the 27th year of Jehoiakim's captivity, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, the army of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon fought so hard against Tyre that the warriors' heads were rubbed bare and their shoulders raw and blistered. Yet Nebuchadnezzar and his army won no plunder to compensate them for all their work. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will carry off their wealth, plunder everything they have to pay his army. Yes, I have given him the land of Egypt as a reward for his work, says the sovereign Lord, because he has worked for me when he destroyed Tyre. So remember Tyre? Right, Phoenicians. Why are they so bad? Yeah, they burn babies. Uh, These were the Canaanites. These were the baby killers. This is the hometown. Tyre is the hometown of who? No, opposite. Who's, you got to remember this. Whose hometown is entire? The devil, Satan. Don't forget that one. Think of it this way. If they had a mascot, it would be the blue devils, like a duke, right? How can a school have a mascot that's a devil? I don't know. But Tyre's hometown. Tyre's the hometown of the devil, of Lucifer, Beelzebub. It's bad news. Nebuchadnezzar goes to attack this town, and it's on two parts. Remember, it's the coast, um, the mainland, and then they have an island right off the coast that is their main city. Nebuchadnezzar tries for 13 years to take the island, and he can't do it. So there's acknowledgement of, and this is sort of tongue-in-cheek. God is not really paying Nebuchadnezzar, but... They're saying here that he's going to turn his attentions south to Egypt, and he does. Now, this is one of the most controversial parts of Ezekiel in terms of history. Because the Babylonians invade Egypt, but they fail. The Egyptians stop them. Nebuchadnezzar does not control Egypt. It's sort of like the prophecies we had with Tyre. They said that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy Tyre. Well, he does and he doesn't. He destroys the mainland, but then right after that, the island itself will fall to Alexander the Great. The same thing happens here. Nebuchadnezzar and his army invades Egypt, and it is a massive, massive battle. Remember that general I told you that put the Jews down in Elephantine? He comes north in Egypt, and he will overthrow the Pharaoh. Uh, This is a picture of him. His name is Amasis. And by all accounts, he was a good guy. Uh, He tried hard. (coughs) He is the one that fought the Babylonians. And he tells us, at least, he manages to keep uh, the Babylonians out of Egypt. They stop him at basically uh, the Red Sea. Um, biblically where the Israelites escaped, the, the Sea of Reeds. 
But that's the end of Egypt. It was the end of their army. Uh, They had nothing left. Uh, Their mercenaries were killed. It's sort of the ultimate definition. It was a pyrrhic victory when you win, but you've really lost. Um, Shortly after, the Persians will defeat Nebuchadnezzar's descendants, and then they will come to Egypt, and they will just brush over Egypt. Egypt was done trying to fight um, anybody else after the Babylonians. So on the one hand, historians say, well, see, the Bible is wrong. Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't actually conquer Egypt. But really, as a historian, I would say he broke Egypt. He was the fuse that led to the explosion that destroyed a 3,000-year-old civilization. No, Nebuchadnezzar didn't sack the great cities of Egypt, but he did break uh, the country. And I say all this just to be completely and utterly honest. There's at no point, I think, in the study of the Bible that we should tell anything but the truth. Now, I'll tell you time and time again, the Bible has said this, and then our histories have said this, and invariably the Bible has been proven correct. And I suspect with things like this new Stella from Apris, when we understand what they're saying, the Bible is, again, going to be knowing more than we do. But if your grandkids are in college and they're telling you, oh, the Bible's prophecies aren't true, invariably this is probably what they're talking about. I think God was just saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar is going to start this and it will be finished in the years to come. Nobody in the world would have guessed that Egypt was done. Realize they had been a power since the last time there were flowers in North Africa. I mean, for 3,000 years. Think about that. You want to talk about a company you can invest in? You know, 3,000 years, they're, they're going to be there. And suddenly they're not. Uh, this, this was a shocking moment in history. Um, and God predicts that part. Maybe our understanding is not perfect of it. Um, One of my professors also has put forth the opinion, uh, and it's just this, there's no evidence internally from Egypt that what Amasis ended up doing is he fought the Babylonians and then he bribed them. He gave them just massive and massive amounts of wealth from Egypt to get them to go away. So that could be this, he will carry off the wealth, plunder everything, uh, plundering everything they have to pay his army. Um, So again, there's probably just more information that we need to know about it, but I, for one, am not afraid. Um, At any point, the history gets a little bumpy uh, to say, we we need to to look at this. Look at verse 21. And the day will come when I will cause the ancient glory of Israel, and it's actually the ancient horn of Israel. Does anybody know what a horn is in Israel? Yes, very good. Did you hear that? It's a shofar. They're they're ram's horns. On that day will come when I will cause the ancient glory, the ancient shofar, to revive. And then at last your words will be respected. They will know that I am the Lord. So has uh, the horn of Israel returned? On lots of levels, the horn of Israel has returned. Um, Is Israel pretty renowned in the world today? 
Is their army pretty kick butt? Um, I, I think I may have told you this. When I was in Egypt last time, they were all ready for a war. There, there's a, a dam being built in Ethiopia that's going to dam up the River Nile. And the Egyptians are terrified because if that dam and the Chinese are funding it, of course the Chinese are funding it. So if they dam up the Nile, um, Egypt's dead. And so the Egyptians were expecting in a moment for there to be a war between Egypt and Ethiopia. And they're very proud of their army. They have the fifth largest army in the world, they tell me. And they have a lot of soldiers. Everywhere you go in Egypt, there's soldiers, soldiers, soldiers. They have a joke that if you stack up the police officers and the soldiers in Egypt all the way like this, you can go to the moon. Um, so they're, they're ready. Um, but honestly, Egyptian soldiers are only a threat to themselves. I mean, they are so untrained, so they, they swing around guns, they point them at it. It's like, your gun has rust on it, and stop pointing it at me. You know, it's like, God, little, little gun control here, people. Um, so God bless them. Uh, I, I, hope, I hope the dam doesn't get finished. They love Trump in Egypt. You wouldn't believe the signs and stuff for Trump. Trump had made a comment in a press conference that he's talking about the dam. And he said, I would not blame Egypt if she had to take military action for the water. And so the populace in Egypt um, just embraced him because they know they can't survive without it. So their joke with me was, um, if Trump isn't doing anything, can he come over here? Uh, I was like, well, have to talk to him about that. But it's, it's really funny uh, the way other cultures process what goes on. So uh, it's sad. It's sad for them. But Israel certainly has, um, has become, I mean, it's, it's night and day. You, you travel in Israel and it's like you're in the United States, sort of. But, I mean, there's roads and there's medicine and there's electricity and Internet. I mean, it's the modern world. And... Five miles down the road, you hit Egypt, and it's not. I mean, there are pockets of it in hotels, but it's still, you know, 200 years in the past. It's, it's not great. So, it, again, the glory of God, I think, still shines through Israel. Is Israel perfect? No, by no stretch of the imagination. But I don't think, on the other hand, you can deny that God is there. The other significant thing about this verse is that the shofar announces the presence of God. So initially, when they blew the shofar, it was at Mount Sinai when God spoke. They heard this sound coming from the wind, and the best that they could relate it to was the blowing of these ram's horns. So that's what they always try to mimic uh, at the temple or at the beginning of the new year or at Yom Kippur, the blowing of the shofar. Ultimately, the shofar announces the coming of the Messiah. They say in Isaiah that we will hear the wind sounding like a shofar and it will announce the coming of the Messiah or we would say the return of Christ. So this is significant for us that this great shofar again is found in the world. So I promise you nobody would have taken the bet in ancient times at this point to say one day Judah will be one of the most powerful nations in the Middle East. And Egypt will be a backwater third world nation. Nobody would have taken that bet because all of history had been the other way. 
I mean, they would have bet on anybody. They would have bet on the Phoenicians. They would have bet on the Babylonians. They would have bet on the Egyptians. These are all powerful, wealthy, cultural, sophisticated people. The Judeans are a backwaters, mountain kingdom with some desert god that nobody's ever heard of. They've not produced any great literature. They said, obviously, they have scripture, but ancients wouldn't have considered it that. You know, they haven't won any great wars. They don't have any control of the trade routes. They're nobody. But again, from God's perspective, if you acknowledge me and you help my people, you will be prosperous. Uh, If not, it doesn't go well for you. So we continue on in chapter 30. It's more explanations of the destruction of Egypt. One of the things I actually used in my dissertation was this image of Pharaoh in where is it? verse 21. This is chapter 30, 21. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. His arm has been put into a cast so he cannot heal. Neither has it been bound up in a splint to make him strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am the enemy of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will break his arms, the good arm along with the broken one. I will make his sword clatter to the ground. I will scatter Egypt to many lands throughout the world. I will strengthen the arms of the Babylonian king and put a sword in his hand but I will break the arms of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The institution of kingship in Egypt, of Pharaoh, had been the centralized government that had held them together again for 3,000 years. And it is, I can tell you as an Egyptologist, the 26th dynasty when it broke. And they never could put it back together. The image of this divine king that rules everything is lost in the 26th dynasty. When that general goes north and overthrows the legitimate pharaoh, the Egyptians just sort of splinter. Uh, They have different groups that are always trying now to get into that position. It's like sharks sensing blood. At one point, this this Amasis pharaoh that tries to rule later on has to tell his people, you know what, I'm a toilet. I'm not really your king, I'm a toilet. Um, I mean, it's that how bad it it had gotten for them. But he he basically said, I'm the toilet that's going to save you. Um, But they won't believe it. Later on, you'll see them have other pharaohs. But the pharaohs will be assassinated by people trying to take the throne. So it's like the Egyptians keep tripping themselves up. They never did this before. If you remember in ancient history, they had a pharaoh named Akhenaten, who was completely insane. And he said there was only one God, and it was him. And the Egyptians followed him until he was dead. Even when he was completely insane, they would not turn against him because of this image of Pharaoh. But that does not happen at the end of their history. That image was gone. It was like Nixon, right? We, we all questioned the presidency after him. Uh, when Apris was overthrown by Amasis, The Egyptians gave up on Pharaoh. So no matter how the arm went back, it was always broken. So anyway, questions? Yes.
That's a long story. Um, so Satan was masquerading as a rain god named Baal, B-A-A-L. And that's why God is so vicious towards worshipers of Baal in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus makes the connection between Beelzebub and Satan. That's what he calls Satan. Beelzebub is the Greek name of Baal Zavul, which is the name of the god of Tyre, lord of the air. So Baal would come with the rain clouds, and this is the way it works in Israel. Um, the rains come out from over the ocean, and they hit the mountains, and they drop the rain. If there's no rain, it's not like Egypt. You're going to go hungry. So Baal said, well, what you can do is you can put your women out to be prostitutes. And if I come by and I see them having sex, then I will come and have sex with Mother Earth, which is his wife, Asherah. And so you can try that. Well, Sometimes that works. We see that all over the Old Testament. Other times when Baal comes by and he doesn't drop the rain, you have to get extreme. And he says, I want the greatest act of fertility you have, which is what? What's the greatest sign of youthful potential ever? A child, preferably a firstborn son. And so Baal begins this cult to say, um, sacrifice your children and I will bring the rain. This is the people that Israel are fighting. It's dark days, but Israel itself will get involved in this religion, and they will sacrifice their own kids. This is King Manasseh of Judah. But all of this culture, religion, is coming out of Tyre. So that's why it's the hometown of Satan. So. Egyptians were bad, but they weren't Phoenicians so, or Canaanites, same people. Anyway... Anything else? Well, you've done it. You've passed all of the hard stuff. Now we get to dessert. I promise you, we're, we're done. There's no more, you're in trouble with God. How many chapters getting off of the heroin? There's no more God taking care of other nations. It's now we're going to see what he has made room for. And it's to be the rest of human history. The introduction of the Messiah and then eventually where we're going. And it's going to be interesting. You're going to get a description of heaven um, that's going to blow your mind. Um, he's going to give you the streets, how high they are, where they're going to go, where you're going to stay. It'll, it'll be fun. But hopefully you can uh, appreciate how far we've climbed up this mountain. Um, it's, it's, it's been a haul. And uh, not everybody's made it, right? Poor Phoenicians got it. The, well, not poor Phoenicians. The poor Egyptians got it. And the Phoenicians deserved it. So, but... Did Steve do the death of Ezekiel's wife last week? Yeah, that's the last hard part. Poor woman. Yeah. All right, if no questions, let's pray. Father God, help us to read the signs tonight. Not something spooky or weird, but just the clear truth that you lay on our hearts. We know we are a blessed nation. We know that your word was meant to be heard throughout time. Not just the words of Jesus that brought the gospel and salvation to us, but also some of the warnings that told us of ancient people who got so proud of their land they forgot the one who gave it to them. 
Help us never to be that way. Father God, we love our Texas. We do. Our dusty land that others turned their nose up, we have made one of the best places on earth. But let us never forget, there is no Texas without you. And if anything, Texas is good because it reflects you. It reflects what happens when people work hard, work together, work in a Christian way, and stick to good values. Help us always to continue to be this beacon of light, to not fall into the temptations of the world, to fall into believing our own myths and lies, to become lost in the things that we have and forget the people that you've sent us. Lord God, we know you are foundational to who we are as a people, who we are as a church, as a family. Help us to resist that magnetic pull to be more like the world. For we know there are constantly whispers and temptations and easier things we can do. But we come back to you to sit before you to hear your ancient word that we might hear your spirit this day, this hour. Father God, our world scares us. We see rumors of war. We see division, hatred. We confess we don't know how to fix it. So we turn to you and pray that your spirit would fill us with tenderness, love, kindness. Teach us, Father, how to reunite our nation again. We don't want to be like the Egyptians with our arms broken because We've decided never to do good things with our arms. Help us to lift our arms in your name. Lift our arms in a way that leads to healing. And help our broken world, O Lord. Help evil be stopped around the globe. May dictators fall and people be given the freedom to worship you again. And help this whole world not worry about the changing weather, but worry about the God who gave this world to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. That is a great question, and the answer is no. So thank you. I had to stop and think about it. We won't have class next week. Sorry. You can come into my house and have turkey, but... Oh